The U.S. Marine Corps is currently embarking on a restructuring plan known as Force Design 2030. It looks to reshape its combat power for future conflicts with near-peer adversaries, i.e. China. It also looks to put a bit more reliance on technological advances by divesting in the sorts of protective measures it used to rely on for maintaining operational readiness. Some, though, feel the plan goes too far with these updates and could potentially lead to the U.S. losing the upper hand on the international stage. One of them is retired Marine General and former Commandant of the Marine Corps, Charles Krulock, who I spoke with earlier about his concerns. Let me start by saying this is not just me. I, I represent a group. Our group is made up of every living retired four star general in the Marine Corps. This includes every living commandant, assistant commandant, and combatant commander. It includes two former chairmen of the Joint Chiefs of Staff a former Secretary of the Navy, and a former Secretary of Defense. So let me tell you what the concerns are. Go ahead. Which will lay out the Force Design 2030. Our concerns are simply put, we're concerned about the divestment of combat capability within the Marine Corps that our nation has always counted on. In the past three years, the Marine Corps has divested 21% of its infantry, 100% of its tanks, 100% of its bridging capability, nearly 100% of its mine clearing and mine breaching capability, 67% of its cannon artillery, 100% of its law enforcement battalions, and some 29% of its fixed-wing fighter attack aircraft and rotary-wing helicopter aircraft. And that doesn't count the significant amount of logistics capability that was also divested. Now, what was the rationale for these draconian cuts, which kind of gets to your question? It's to build a force, Force Design 2030, that's going to sit on islands within the first island chain off of China and wait for the Chinese Navy ships to sortie and then take them under missile fire if and when they come into range. I'm sure your listeners will understand that these forces, which are named stand-in forces, will be targeted immediately by the Chinese as they move to their island positions and as they remain on their island positions. They have a lot of electronics gear with them that's going to put out an electric, electronic signature. They have heat signatures that are going to be produced. So the Chinese intelligence gathering capability is equal to ours. And I will tell you, as soon as the first round is fired, the stand-in force will be taken themselves under heavy and extremely accurate enemy missile fire. Equally disturbing to all of the people that I mentioned earlier is that the divestment of current capability has occurred while still experimenting with new capability. As an example, the missiles that we're trying to get, the command, control, and communications capability all of those are being experimented with, and they will not be available 
in the quality, but more importantly, the quantity necessary. Think of the ammunition, the missiles, the quantity necessary for another seven to 10 years. That gap in time is a risk to our national security. Gotcha. As the defense defense budget increases, the capability of all the forces decrease, and in the case of the Marine Corps, it's a self-inflicted wound. So it sounds like an oversimplification of your argument, and I stress the oversimplification part, is that you seem to take the stance that the best defense is a good offense, or at least the threat of a good offense, and that may be where the change in the... uh, in the philosophy of, you know, hey, the future of warfare is long-range weapons and a more defensive posture, but you are saying that the Marine Corps should go with what has worked in the past rather than move forward and, and evolve into this new realm, or are you saying that they're just modernizing in, in a way that is forgetting what the lessons learned of the past? Well, you've hit a really key point. I mean, uh, the fact of the matter is, we, the Corps now, are more focused on a defensive posture. That's, that's pretty obvious, and I don't think anybody would disagree with that. that we're, we've been painted with the brush that we're just a bunch of old fogies who want to return to the good old days, that we don't understand the impact of new technology on warfare. Uh, that we don't recognize that the character of war has changed, that we don't know the latest intelligence. They're averse to innovation and new thinking. All of that is pure nonsense, and and to many of us it's insulting. We've seen the impact of drones, loitering munitions, improved CQ die capabilities. We understand, as we did when we were on active duty, that the character of war changes absolutely. At the same time, we know from experience that the nature of war does not change. It is brutal, it's bloody, it's cruel to the extreme, and unforgiving of mistakes. And it's now being played out in living color in Ukraine. To think that all of a sudden warfare is going to be fought at 150-kilometer distance, that there's not going to be any close-in fighting, that we're, we're going to be able to cyber our way across a river crossing, you know, or use deceptive means to to cross a minefield. It's just crazy. We understand we are all for capitalizing on technology. What we're not in favor of is divesting of capability before the new capability gets here. And the thought that somehow war is going to be antiseptic. You know, this is not Ender's game. We're not playing Ender's game. We're playing real world, and it is tough. And to think that it's going to be solved. I mean, how does a, how does a, a drone work in the jungle? How does a loitering munition work in the jungle? How does drones work in a sandstorm out in the desert? I mean, there's just so many improbable thoughts that you can fight uh, uh, that the the actual character of war is going to change. 
And so what I, you know, my other question is in this age where mostly, you know, we're in sort of a new era that's not like the Cold War, but where the posturing really is the name of the game nowadays. And it's just about sending messages. Could this be that be factoring into new the military decisions that are being made from above saying, you know, if we show that we're ready for a theoretical war with China, somebody, you know, who we have differences with, but. It haven't it hasn't escalated to that level yet? Is there a fear of escalation to the point where they're you know trying to match us and we're just kind of button heads against each other? That's a very good point, and let me address that. Uh, first off, uh, we don't even have the authorization to go onto some of these islands, and the uh, Philippines has made it perfectly clear that they don't want us there if if we're going to war. Uh, the Japanese now are buying missiles and getting ready to, to help in the defense. If you're, well, let me back up. Uh, if you're going to look at capability and you've got great capability, the Navy with their submarines, they're out there. Uh, the Air Force with their long-range missiles on long-range bombers are out there. The Army with their multi-domain task force, which does the same thing as the Marine Corps, is out there. If you are the President of the United States and you get indications and warning, what are you going to do? Well, I'll tell you the first thing that will really reinforce that you're serious is to take uh, the Marines that are out there and capable, not the ones that are sitting on islands, and show the Chinese that you're reinforcing the Korean Peninsula, you're reinforcing Japan with the troops that can do what needs to be done. But if you take away their capability, which they've done, and you heard what they're taking away, if you take away that capability, the threat's not there. Just thinking that the Marine Corps sitting on these islands, so designated by the Chinese intel capability, are going to threaten the Chinese enough to stop them in their tracks. It's, that's just wishful thinking. Got it. And so let's talk what has probably been the major hang up is nowadays is budgetary concerns, which I'm yeah. sure you've dealt with in, in, in your uh, day and also with your current push for Congress to fund these sorts of measures that you're suggesting. So how do you maintain a budget that makes way for innovation and research, but also keeps these baseline things that you and your group are concerned about? Well, uh, first and foremost, the way the current Marine Corps went about it gained a lot of attention. Uh, it was like a shiny new penny that sounded great, that looked like it solved a strategic problem. And uh, by the way, it cost nothing because he was divesting before he got the capability. So the Congress is sitting there saying, well, well we don't have to fund anything because he's divested of this and so when it comes time and when it's fully developed, we can buy it in the quantity that's necessary. That all sounds great, except that there's a time frame that places the nation at risk in doing that. What do you do with the decreasing budget that we've, we see, decreasing even though the budget increases its 
you know, we all know that uh, the, the dollar doesn't can't cost, you know, get as much now. You have to understand that you pick and choose. You prioritize within your defense budget, which I did as a commandant. Here's the priority. I'm, I know I'm not going to get it all, but here's my priority. And you set it up there. You don't. You do not divest until you have that capability. Best example I can give you is what you now know as the V-22, the tilt rotor aircraft. The Marine Corps had something called the CH-46 helicopter. I was the commandant. That bird was ancient. We kept every one of them until the first squadron of the V-22 came into the inventory. I then got rid of a squadron of the CH-46. You, you do like for like. Uh, if you wanted to get the missiles or you wanted to do something with artillery, you wait till you get the new artillery in, whether it's MLRS or whatever, before you get rid of your cannon artillery. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. So so the, the bottom line is that's going to give the Congress of the United States a, a plan that they can either accept or veto. In this instance, they didn't really understand the plan because the commandant is saying, I'm going to pay for this all myself. I'm going to do it by divesting. The problem is he divested before he had the capability to get the new equipment in. That's that's a threat to this nation. That's retired General Charles Krulock, 31st Commandant of the Marine Corps. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, President of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up 
in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama. And there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be. 
versus being at a place where others think you should be? One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.